0: Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West, stories number 21, from mid-June 2023. Blood on the Tracks at Mile 59, The Duffy's Cut Story. Welcome to the 21st episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, an historic and active cemetery in Bala Kinwood, Pennsylvania. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and volunteer podcaster. Laurel Hill West opened in 1869 across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill East, in Philadelphia. It's more than twice as big as Laurel Hill East. It has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population. And like Laurel Hill East, it is open 365 days a year, now from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. There's plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or at the Conservatory and the Bell Tower. If you enter from Belmont, follow the road past the second gate that has the white line in the middle. Just follow the white line. It'll take you straight to the Bell Tower. Of course, you can always duck in while you're walking the Kinwid Trail from the Barmouth entrance. Your best bet for public transportation, take the R6 to Maniunk, or a bus to the Wissahickon Transportation Center on Ridge Avenue, then cross the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge, walk up Riders Ferry Road to the entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. This 21st episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is from mid-June 2023. The first American railroads were built on the backs of Irish immigrants. An estimated 50,000 died in the process. In the three-mile-per-hour world of 1832, 57 Irish fresh off the boat were hired by their countryman Philip Duffy and taken to work at mile 59 of the Philadelphia and Columbia Railroad now part of SEPTA's R5 main line. A few weeks later they were all dead and secretly buried. 180 years later some of their remains were recovered and relocated to a plot near the gate at Laurel Hill West. What happened to the Duffy's Cut 57? You don't have to go far through the Belmont Avenue gate at Laurel Hill West before you notice the large Celtic cross on an island on the right side of the road. There's a map of Ireland at the base, green, of course. The inscription says, Here lie the remains of some of the 57 Irish railroad workers who died of violence and cholera while building the Philadelphia and Columbia Railroad in East Whiteland, Pen, August 1832. Nearly 180 years later, on 9 March 2011, remains of five men and one woman found at the site along the rail line were laid to rest with a religious service in Bala-Kinwood. This is their story. In the New World colonies, most European emigrants came from England, Ireland, and Germany. Between 250,000 and 400,000 so-called Scotch-Irish migrated to America in the early 18th century. And they soon became the dominant culture of the Appalachians from Pennsylvania to Georgia. Also known as the Ulster Scots, the Scotch-Irish are an ethnic group in Ireland. They speak an Ulster Scots dialect of the Scots language, which is a West Germanic language, and they share a common history, culture, and ancestry. As an ethnic group, they largely descended from Scottish and Northern English natives who settled in the north of Ireland in the 17th century. They were Protestant, mainly Presbyterian, Anglican, and Methodist. Between 1771 and 1774. About 26,000 Scotch-Irish left the northern province of Ulster for colonial America. More than 18,600 ended up in the Delaware Valley, although some did travel on further. They sometimes immigrated not as immigrants, but as members of wider communities that included ministers, teachers, extended families. They became natural supporters of the American revolutionary anti-British cause, and after 1776 were among the leaders of the new nation. In 1790, there were only 60,000 Catholics in the United States. That was about 1.6% of the population. They were papists, whom many thought would rather do the will of the pontiff in Rome than the president in Philadelphia. They gravitated more toward the policies of third president Thomas Jefferson than those of second president John Adams. Adams admired the British and the natural leadership of its aristocracy to run a country. Jefferson, on the other hand, admired France and its Republican society that celebrated the individual citizen, regardless of class or station. From 1797, to 1801, during Adams' term in office, the fifth sessions of the United States Congress met at Congress Hall, what we now call Independence Hall, from 4 March 1797 to 4 March 1799. In 1798, the House and the Senate, both composed of a majority of Adams' Federalist supporters, passed the Alien and Sedition Acts four laws that applied restrictions to immigration and speech in the United States. This was less than a quarter century after Thomas Jefferson told us that all men are created equal and that was self-evident. The Naturalization Act increased the requirements to seek citizenship. It bumped the time spent in the United States necessary for an alien to become a naturalized citizen from 5 to 14 years and the declaration of intention to become a citizen increased from 3 to 5 years this was the federalist attempt to slow down the rate of citizenship at that time the federal government sat in philadelphia it was thick with elitist and pro-aristocratic elements who were not pleased with the irish presence whether they were protestant or not In 1798, speaking in support of the Naturalization Act and the Alien and Sedition Acts, Congressman Harrison Gray Otis of Boston delivered a famous speech in which he declared that he did, quote, not wish to invite hordes of wild Irishmen, nor the turbulent and disorderly of all parts of the world, to come here with a view to disturb our tranquility, end quote. The Alien Friends Act, officially an act concerning aliens, allowed the President to arbitrarily imprison and deport any non-citizen determined to be, quote, dangerous to the peace and safety of the United States, end quote. The Alien Enemies Act, officially an act respecting alien enemies, granted the government additional powers to regulate non-citizens that would take effect in times of war, Under this law, the president could authorize the arrest, relocation, or deportation of any non-citizen male residing in the United States who is 14 years or older. The Sedition Act criminalized false and malicious statements about the federal government. The Alien Friends Act and the Sedition Act expired at the end of Adams' presidency on 3 March 1801. The next year, Jefferson repealed the Naturalization Act. He replaced it with the Naturalization Law of 1802. The free white person requirement remained in place. Resident children of naturalized citizens could now be considered citizens, as well as children born abroad of U.S. citizens. The Alien Enemies Act is still in effect. On 7 December 1941, in response to the bombing of Pearl Harbor, President Franklin D. Roosevelt used the authority of the revised Alien Enemies Act to issue presidential proclamations number 2525, Alien Enemies Japanese, 2526, Alien Enemies German, and 2527, Alien Enemies Italian to apprehend, restrain, secure, and remove Japanese, German, and Italian non-citizens. When Roosevelt later cited further wartime powers to issue Executive Order 9066, which turn Japanese American citizens, it was unrelated to the Alien Enemies Act. Excluding enslaved Africans, there was relatively little immigration from 1770 to 1830, especially when there was a financial downturn in the 1820s. Large-scale European immigration picked up again from the 1830s to the 1850s, and the migrants again came from Britain, Ireland, Germany, as many as 400,000. Many were attracted by the cheap farmland and the knowledge that there was a constant need for people willing to do hard labor. Irish Catholics were primarily unskilled workers who built most of the young country's canals and railroads. Chinese immigrants did not become railroad workers until the 1860s with the Central Pacific Railroad. Many Irish also went to work in the emerging textile mill towns of the Northeast. I talked about them, and All Bones considered Laurel Hill Stories number 21, Me and My Machine. Others became longshoremen in the growing Atlantic and Gulfport cities. And by the mid-19th century, one out of every six Philadelphia residents was born in Ireland. With the acquisition of the Louisiana Territory, there were incentives to make connections with this new unexplored part of the continent. In 1826, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania passed a package of legislation called the Main Line of Public Works. It funded the construction of various canal and road projects, mostly in southern Pennsylvania, but reaching as far west as Pittsburgh. In 1828, the Commonwealth approved two rail lines, the 82-mile Pacific and Columbia, or the PNC, from Columbia on the Susquehanna to Philadelphia. The other ran through the central mountains of Pennsylvania. After railroad tracks reached Columbia, there were 172 miles of canals that linked Columbia to Hollidaysburg, then 36 miles of rail with 10 inclined planes, from Hollidaysburg to Johnstown, and then 104 miles of canal from Johnstown to Pittsburgh. When it was finished, a traveler could board a railroad car at Broad and Vine in Philadelphia at 8 o'clock Monday morning and be delivered to Pittsburgh on Thursday afternoon. Eventually this main line of public works was truncated to simply the main line. Philip Duffy, a Roman Catholic was born in Ireland in 1783. Came to the United States in 1798, the year of the United Irishmen Revolt in Ireland under Theobald Wolfe Tone, the father of Irish republicanism. Duffy held contracts with several railroad companies to build sections of their lines a mile at a time. For the PNC, the miles were numbered from Columbia on the Susquehanna River. To Philadelphia. The closer you got to Philly, the higher the numbers. Over a two-decade period, Duffy had contracts for miles 16, 60, 59, 46, 29, and an area known as the Belmont Plain. This last job made possible the near main line of Philadelphia suburban stations at Overbrook, Marion, Narberth, which did not yet exist, in the 1830s, Winwood and Ardmore, although back then it was known as Athensville. Duffy signed a contract for Mile 59 on 18 May 1831. It was to be completed in less than a year by 1 April 1832. Mile 59 had a large valley just east of the Sugartown curve between Paoli and Fraser. There were discussions about possibly building a bridge to span the valley, but after talks back and forth, it was decided to fill the gap instead. This gulch picked up the name Duffy's Cut and mile 59 was considered the most difficult section of the PNC line. Less than 10 weeks later, on 12 July 1831, some 400 Irish Protestants paraded in Philadelphia, To celebrate the 141st anniversary of the Battle of the Boyne, where William of Orange defeated James II and established the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland. Nearly a thousand Philadelphia Irish Catholics came to watch, but to no one's surprise a fight broke out and dozens of people were injured, some of them seriously. But despite this feeling of unwelcome, Irish Catholics kept coming to Philadelphia because the area needed workmen. A typical mile of PNC construction required between 100 and 120 men. On 23 June 1832, Philip Duffy got a batch of workmen fresh off the boat in Philadelphia Harbor. In this case, it was from the John Stamp, sailing under Captain John Young. It had set out from Londonderry, or Catholic Derry, in April and it arrived in Philadelphia eight weeks later. 21 men were from Donegal County, 14 from Tyrone, 9 from Derry. As required, the ship had stopped at the Lazaretto in Tinicum, Delaware County, where ill passengers were removed before the rest of the laborers made it to Philadelphia. Their average age was 22. They came seeking work. Although the potato famine would not occur for another 10 years. What they found was backbreaking labor in exchange for 10 to $15 a month and miserable living conditions. It is estimated that 50,000 Irishmen died building the railroads of this country. Maybe you've heard the old saying, under every mile of track, there's a dead Irishman. Philip Duffy took his men directly to the work site near Paoli, where they stayed in a makeshift shanty town. Now It was shortly after the arrival of the John stamp that cholera also showed up in Philadelphia. Cholera, also known as cholera morbus, is a bacterial illness caused by the bacterium Vibrio cholerae. It invades the walls of the small intestine and prevents water from being absorbed and causes a large amount of watery diarrhea, which leads to dehydration and often death. It's spread by unsafe water or food, which has been contaminated with infected human feces. Man is the only animal known to carry the disease of cholera. 1832 was in the middle of the second worldwide cholera pandemic, which ran from 1826 to 1837. And which caused more deaths more quickly than any other epidemic disease in the 19th century. Some 150,000 people worldwide, somewhere between 7,000 and 10,000 in the United States, and an estimated 900 Philadelphians were killed by cholera during this outbreak. Now Philadelphia had lived through epidemics before especially during the yellow fever outbreaks of 1793 and 1798, which are beyond the scope of this podcast. Other podcasts and YouTube videos can supply you that history if you want to pursue it. In the days before the identification of microbes as a cause of disease in the 1880s, the miasma theory of disease spread was prevalent. Miasma, was a noxious form of bad air, also known as night air. This theory had been around since the days of Hippocrates in the fourth century BCE. People believed that illness came from rotting organic matter. The term malaria literally means bad air in Italian. The Argentine capital, Buenos Aires, got its name in the 14th century From the relatively clean air in the hills above the old city. One of the reasons that Laurel Hill Cemetery was founded four miles outside the city limits of Philadelphia in 1836 was to escape the miasmas of graveyards in the city. It was not until 1854 that the connection between unclean drinking water and cholera was made by British physician John Snow. When he removed the handle from a common water pump, he curtailed an outbreak of cholera in London's Soho section. And Robert Koch did not identify Vibrio cholerae until 1883, while he was working in Egypt. Cholera struck Philadelphia in early July, and it spread. By late July, the Philadelphia Board of Health recorded a jump in disease and in deaths. The Sanitary Commission of Philadelphia sought advice from three eminent physicians, including Charles de Lucina Meggs, 1792 1869, Laurel Hill East, Section I. History now sees Meggs as a bit of a fool. He specialized in obstetrics and gynecology, but he did not believe in the use of anesthesia during delivery. And even after the work of Joseph Lister and Ignaz Semmelweis in the 1850s, Meggs refused to believe that postpartum sepsis, which was then called puerperal fever, was contagious. He sniffed, "Doctors are gentlemen, and gentlemen's hands are clean." For my fellow medical brethren, the eponym Meggs syndrome was not named for Charles de Lucina Meigs. It was named after a 20th century Boston gynecologist named Joe Vincent Meigs. By mid-August 1832, cholera had made its way to Chester County, less than two months after Duffy's laborers arrived. Chester County was one of the three original Pennsylvania counties created by William Penn in 1682, along with Philadelphia County and Bucks County. It was named for Chester, England. At that time there was no known effective treatment for cholera. Among unsuccessful therapies were calomel, camphor, quinine, morphine, leeches, bloodlettings, and even somewhat paradoxically medicinal enemas and purgatives. Mostly patients were made comfortable while nature took its course. Now we know that antibiotics, vigorous intravenous and or oral rehydration and early introduction of food saves lives with cholera. When the men at Duffy's Cut started to fall ill, an unnamed blacksmith, now believed to be Malachi Harris, was employed at mile 59 and he became very involved in their care. He was also the man who gave them decent burials when they died of the disease. Four Sisters of Charity were summoned from Philadelphia, nearly 30 miles to the east. They were among 14 nuns from Emmitsburg, Maryland, who had come north to help care for the ill in cholera hospitals. This order had been founded by Elizabeth Ann Seton in 1809. Seton was canonized as a saint of the Roman Catholic Church in 1975. She was the first person born in the United States to receive that honor. When the sisters were transported to the site, their wagon driver refused to get closer than a half mile east of the valley. This left the nuns to haul their own baggage and medical supplies, the final distance, quote, "clad in the habit of their order in the blazing, hot August sun." End quote. They stayed until the last man died, and then they walked back to the city, as no one would give them a ride or even associate with them. In all, cholera purportedly claimed the lives of 57 of the men. Since there were probably 100 to 120 Irishmen working on that mile of track, that means the disease had roughly a 50% mortality rate. It's about average for cholera. The men were quickly buried alongside the railroad track in unmarked graves. And by the time the pandemic faded, The Irishmen were nearly forgotten, like thousands of other Irish immigrant laborers across the continent. Their shanty town was burned to the ground. If word of their death and disappearance had made it back to Ireland, the railroad source of cheap labor would have dried up. The file containing their information was stuffed in a cabinet and hidden from public eyes. Work on the track soon resumed and on 16 April 1834 the rail line from Philadelphia to Columbia was opened. Passengers paid three dollars and 25 cents for the 82 mile journey. That's about four cents per mile at a time when a skilled laborer made about a dollar a day. Only six months later a second rail track between Philadelphia and Columbia was opened. Initially, these trains were drawn by horses. There was a new team ready to switch over every 12 miles or so. In 1837, the PNC carried nearly 105,000 passengers, with 76,000 traveling the entire length of the rail line. Slowly, horses were replaced by the horsepower of steam engines. The P and R Railroad evolved into the Pennsylvania Railroad, and the men of Duffy's cut were seemingly forgotten for more than a half century. But a few people remembered. Philip Duffy disappeared back to his Port Richmond neighborhood of Philadelphia and died there in 1871. He was interred in the graveyard of St. Anne's Catholic Church at Memphis and Lehigh. It is likely he never again spoke of the Irish workers who died on his watch. Apparently, his family chose not to mark his grave for fear that it would be desecrated. But memories and stories of the events at Duffy's Cut persisted as oral tradition among the working men of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Repair crews were familiar with the small mound near the city of Fraser, and understood that it was the final resting place of railway workers who died in 1832. Locals who lived near the site would occasionally report the appearance of ghostly apparitions near the burial site. In the 1880s, Chester County historian Julius Saxey heard these rumors, and he started to gather what information he could about the 1832 mass death episode. This had occurred 10 years before he was born. Philip Duffy had been dead for more than a decade when Saxey started his research. Julius Friedrich Adolf Saxey, Lit D, 1842 1919, Laurel Hill West River section 507, was a historian, especially early German history in Pennsylvania. But when he heard stories about the railroad workers of Duffy's cut, He wrote about them twice in the village record of Westchester, once about the details of the deaths and another about Duffy's contract and the cost of building Mile 59 in 1832. Julius, who was also called Julian, even managed to interview an eyewitness to the events of more than 50 years earlier. At the time of Saxey's death at age 77, he had become the librarian and the curator at the Masonic Temple at Central Square near City Hall. The man responsible for preserving the records of Duffy's cut was Martin Withington Clement, who served as president of the Pennsylvania Railroad from 1935 to 1949 during its time of robust growth brought on by World War II. Clement had developed a fascination with the men of Duffy's Cut in 1909, when he first heard the story while serving as an assistant in Paoli. By the time Clement was vice president of operations in 1932, he had accumulated many documents in his office, which he kept as file number 004.01C, History of Duffy's Cut Stone Enclosure, East of Malvern, PA., which marks the burial place of 57 track laborers who were victims of the cholera epidemic in 1832, End quote. This file was off-limits to public inspection. When Clements died in 1966 and the Pennsylvania Railroad became defunct when it merged with the New York Central Line in 1968, This mysterious file passed on to Clement's assistant, Joseph P. Trapecian. At his death in 1977, it passed to his widow, Mary. And when she died in 1984, it came into the hands of her grandson, the Reverend Dr. J. Francis Watson for safekeeping. More about Francis and his brother William soon. In the meantime, houses sprang up in the neighborhood of Duffy's Cut And by 2000, there were upscale condominiums within 60 yards of the site, which had now acquired the stone wall around it. Ghost stories have been tied to the site since its very beginning, back when it was known by locals as Dead Horse Hollow. The spot is not far from the location of the infamous Paoli Massacre, which occurred during the Revolutionary War in 1777. 53 American soldiers were killed and buried in a mass grave while more than 300 were wounded. For more than 200 years, local residents have reported seeing a headless ghost at the Paoli massacre site, purportedly one of the dead soldiers. The ghosting at mile 59 started within weeks of the deaths. Sachse interviewed an old resident who related It was on a warm and murky night in September. I was down to the Green Tree Tavern and decided to walk home on the railroad. The night was hot and foggy. So I trudged up between the stone blocks until I got on the fill. And there I saw with my eyes the ghosts of Irishmen who died with the cholera a month ago. A-dancing around the big trench where they were buried. It's true mister, it was awful. The same man also reported they looked as if they were a kind of green and blue fire and there they were a hopping and bobbing on their graves. This eyewitness who swears he was not intoxicated probably experienced the phenomenon of the -the will-o'-the-wisp or ignis fatuus which is Latin for giddy flame. Ignis fatuus is an atmospheric ghost light usually seen by travelers at night, especially as they go over or around bogs, swamps, and marshes. The phenomenon resembles a flickering lamp or lantern. In urban legends, folklore, and superstition, wills-o'-the-wisp are typically attributed to ghosts, fairies, or elemental spirits. Modern science explains the light aspect as a natural phenomena, such as bioluminescence or chemiluminescence. It's caused by the oxidation of phosphine, diphosphane, and methane produced by organic decay. Since phosphine and diphosphane mixtures spontaneously ignite on contact with oxygen in the air, only small quantities of it would be needed to ignite the much more abundant methane To create these ephemeral fires. This spectral vision sounds similar to the so-called angels glow which was noted emanating from soldiers injuries at the Battle of Shiloh in Tennessee during April of 1862. Some of those wounded soldiers sat in the mud for two rainy days and nights waiting for the medics to get around to them and as dusk fell the first night some of them noticed something very strange. Their wounds glowed, and they cast a faint light into the darkness of the battlefield. When the troops were eventually moved to field hospitals, those whose wounds glowed had a higher survival rate, and their wounds healed more quickly and cleanly than their unilluminated brothers-in-arms. The seemingly protective effect of the mysterious light earned it the nickname Angel's Glow. This phenomenon is now known to be caused by a bioluminescent bacteria named photorebdis luminescence, which only becomes active in cold damp conditions like those that have been on the Shiloh battlefield that night. They would not have explained the ignis fatuus experience near Duffy's Cut. September 2002, twin brothers Francis and William Watson became absorbed in the story of Duffy's Cut. At a Labor Day gathering in Freehold, New Jersey, the Reverend Francis Watson shared the old Clement file given him by their grandmother with William, a professor of history at Immaculata University, which is located not far from Duffy's Cut, which is something that he admits he had never heard about until 2002. Immaculata College was founded in 1920 as the Villa Maria College, but it underwent a name change in 1929. After the Watson brothers reviewed the written material they decided to try and exhume the remains so they could be placed in consecrated ground. They also applied for and obtained a historical marker which was approved by the Commonwealth in March 2004. You can see it at the corner of King Road and Sugartown Road in Malvern. The brothers assembled a team including a geophysicist, a ground radar specialist, And a forensic anthropologist. This was to assist in their research and they undertook a dozen digs in the valley in 2004 and 2005. They discovered about a hundred items of metal and glass, many of which were put on display at the library of Immaculata University. And then personal artifacts were found, including several smoking pipes with shamrocks and harps carved on the bowls and the stems, likely to have dated from the 1830s. When the Watsons wrote their first book about their discoveries and research in 2006, it was called The Ghosts of Duffy's Cut, and they mentioned that they had not yet found any human remains. But on 20 March 2009, They found skeletal remains of a male about 5 feet 6 inches tall, maybe 18 years old. There was a wound on his skull that suggested a heavy blow to the head around the time of death. The second and third sets of remains were excavated in August. One of these skulls also showed signs of a heavy blow at about the time of death. July 2010 brought two more sets of remains, including a tall man who suffered an axe blade blow to his head, as well as a bullet wound. The seventh set of remains were those of a woman, probably brought along for laundry and cooking. She, too, had suffered blows to the head one of these skeletons had become enmeshed among the roots of a massive tulip poplar tree, which apparently started growing on the site a decade or so after the bodies were buried. Seven sets of remains, all with evidence of heavy blows to the head contributing to their death. The skull with the apparent bullet hole underwent computerized tomography, CT, and it showed metallic shrapnel fragments. The archaeological site had now become an apparent crime scene. The Watson team theorized what had happened. They found reports during these cholera years of people being killed simply because they were suspected of having cholera or they had harbored people suspected of suffering from cholera. Now it makes no sense that these Irish workers would have been killed by the railroad company. These were workers who were needed to complete the PNG line and they would have to be replaced. It is more likely that as the first laborers sickened and died, the others saw their fate and tried to leave the site. But once word was out in the community, these coarsely dressed, non-English speaking, easily identified Irish laborers, were forced back into their shanty town by local vigilantes. And they met their final fate by violent death at their hands. The first skull that was discovered was found to have a dental abnormality. There was a first molar missing from the mandible. It had never grown in. This is a rather rare genetic condition. Further research showed the name of a young John Ruddy from Donegal on the good ship John Stamp. The Watson team discovered that the Ruddy lines still lived in Donegal and many of them had the unusual defect of a non-forming first molar. This was their first almost certain identification. The bones of Ruddy were repatriated to Ireland in 2012 and interred at the Church of the Holy Family in Ardera County Donegal, Ireland. That's the same year that the remains of five bodies found at Duffy's Cut, forgotten for 180 years, were placed under the Celtic Cross at Laurel Hill West, in a ceremony attended by several hundred people, including Kevin Conby, Deputy Ambassador for the Irish Embassy in Washington, D.C. Kilt-wearing pipes and drummers stood under the cedar tree and played a requiem composed by Reverend Watson. The search for more victims has stopped for now as their apparent resting place is too close to the Amtrak and SEPTA tracks for the investigators to do more digging. For now, that remaining evidence lies in the gully near the hillside. The earthen wall constructed by the doomed Irish laborers still stands. Under it, there's a culvert that allows a tiny stream to pass. This is the same source of the Irishman's drinking water 180 years ago, and perhaps the source of contamination that started the initial outbreak of cholera. An article in the Lancaster Sunday News, dated 11 March 2012, says, A double-trunked tulip poplar tree that stood over the graves will be converted into 57 musical instruments over the next three to five years. There is a plan to make fiddles and guitars, and at least one banjo and one grand piano out of this wood. Joe Devoy of the Watson team said, this tree is these guys, because their remains nourished it. So hopefully they can sing their songs, tell their story. You can follow this progress at duffyscutproject.com slash bios slash Devoy, j-d-e-v-o-y, dot h-t-m-l. In the meantime, other musicians have taken up their story. Celtic punk band the Dropkick Murphys did a rabble-rouser called The Hardest Mile, but like much of its repertoire, the words are barely intelligible. More along my taste is Irish storyteller Christy Moore, who recorded the song Duffy's Cut, in 2009. In the summer of 1832, the sailing ship John Stamp, tied up into the port of Pennsylvania, up the ladder from the cargo deck, poor men and women crept in into the open skies above.
1: Up the ladder from the cargo deck, there's men and women crept into the open skies above. Do you smear a good Fault you're out Duff Duffy's my name. I cut through stone. Work for me, I'm money your own. And dollars I'll pay you. Fifty-seven men signed up. Duffy promised to fill their cup If they cut the Malvern Valley up Mile 59 Had to be in time For the railway line From Ballyshannon and the Clinties They sailed right into hell They suffered like the weeping Christ Down Duffy's got their sweater blood in two is wishing well. Were they taken by the sickness? Were the they hunt hunted down like scum? Was the poison in the water? Was the cholera or murder? The smoke that hid the bullets from the barrel of the boss's gun. Blacksmith and holy sisters, good people through and through, whispered prayers into the victims' ears, that's all that they could do. How come the bosses had silence on their lips as 57 Irish navvies were buried in a pit? No stone to mark their resting place, no one to mourn their passing. Shannon and Atlantis They sailed right into hell They suffered like the weeping Christ Down Duffy's got They sweat their blood And His wishing well Were they taken by the sickness Were they hunted down like skull Was the poison in the water Was the colour of her murder The smoke That hit the bullets the fact that the boss is good. 42, a sail and ship drum stamp, tied up inside the port, a Pennsylvania.
0: In the July edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 52, you'll hear about four astronomers interred at Laurel Hill and their relationship with the transit of Venus, an astronomical event that is among the rarest of predictable astronomical phenomena. David Rittenhouse, David H. Rao, Hannah Bouvier-Peterson, and Sarah Lee Lippincott all made contributions to the understanding of this occasion when the inner planet Venus makes its trek in front of the sun. In Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, episode 22, in mid July, I will tell you the origins of a longtime Philadelphia favorite, the department store Strawbridge and Clothier, whose founders are interred not far from each other in the Summit section. I remind you that there are self-guided tours available for both cemeteries. For Laurel Hill East, you can download an app. For Laurel Hill West, you can find it with your podcasts. There's a walkthrough from the Kinwood Trail entrance to the Pencoid exit and another in the opposite direction. If you do the round trip, it's almost two hours of stopping at stones, peeping in mausoleums, and hearing about nearly 100 people who helped make Philadelphia what it is today. All Bones Considered and Biographical Bites from Bala are mostly researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and volunteer podcaster for both cemeteries. You can reach me through my email joe at joelex.net. The theme song, Names at Peace, is by local artist James Harrow. And special thanks today to Reverend Frank Watson who kindly went through my script And made some comments. Maybe I will see you on a tour next up the bibliography. If you don't stick around for that, stay safe, stay well. There's a lot of material out there on the Duffy's Cut incident. A lot of it has the names of William E. Watson and J. Francis Watson on it. The book, The Ghosts of Duffy's Cut, The Irish Who Died, Building America's Most Dangerous Stretch of Railroad, is by William E. Watson, J. Francis Watson, John H. Otthies III, and Earl H. Chandelmeyer III. It was printed by Prager Press, P-R-E-E-G-E-R, Westport, Connecticut, and London in 2006. Follow-ups. Drama in the Courtroom, Theater in the Streets, Philadelphia's Irish Riot of 1831. The author is Francis Hober. H-O-E-B-E-R. It's from the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, July 2001, volume 125, number three, pages 191 to 232. The Sisters of Charity, the 1832 cholera epidemic in Philadelphia, and Duffy's Cut that one is by William Watson. It was published in U.S. Catholic Historian, Fall 2009, volume 27, number 4, pages 1 through 16. Bridget in Philadelphia, the Irish Servant Girl, 1840 to 1930. Author is Margaret Lynch Brennan, Pennsylvania Legacies, volume 14, number 2, pages 12 through 17, that's fall of 2014. Who Was the Real Philip Duffy by J. Francis Watson. Sources Railroad History, number 214, Spring Summer 2016, pages 82 to 89. History and Memory at Duffy's Cut, William E. Watson. Railroad History, Fall Winter 2014, number 2011, pages 76 to 87, and three Philadelphia stories. The author is Kevin Kenny. It's from American Journal of Irish Studies, volume 15, pages 16 to 30, 2019. That's published by Glucksman Ireland House, New York University. Thank you for listening to the show today, and stay safe, stay well. Maybe I'll see you at the cemetery.